Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me at his podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Kwai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, let's get into it, uh, and let's talk about what we've been doing <laughs> been doing a lot of uh, theme park stuff uh, this past weekend. I went to Disney California Adventure. This is the other park in Southern California, uh, part of Disneyland Resort. It's not Disneyland, but it's the park that's across from that that opened in 2001. And uh, it's the first time I've been there in over a year, you know, since it closed down for the pandemic. And uh, we did a video of, of riding the rides, eating the the food there's some like new tacos there that are like incredible and some new churros and uh also because you know the park is open we've finally gotten access to kind of get close to avengers campus which is opening next month june 4th i will be there uh so we get some close-up uh, look at uh the, the gates and so, some of the some of the new additions we get it we get a, a bird's eye view, or not a bird's eye view. I guess it's from land, so it's not a bird's eye view. But we get we get a closer view at the Quinjet. So if you want to see that, I'll put the link in the the show notes. But um, yeah, I, I'm excited to get to Avengers Campus next month. Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, Peter, I had the most expensive weekend of all time. Uh, most expensive, unfun weekend of all time. Oh no! Uh, I was. Well, I was doing my Darren Lynn Bowsman interview for Spiral, which you can read on the site. I was putting my shoes on to head out for my first press uh, event, in-person press event in over a year. I held my shoe up, and I could see light through my shoe when I realized I needed to go shoe shopping, Peter. Um, and <laughs> as those of you know who have seen me in person know, I, I am six foot four. I wear a size 17 shoe. I cannot buy shoes at regular places. So uh, shoe shopping is an actual ordeal that involves me going to a specialty store in a warehouse in Austin <laughs> who mostly does international business of sending size 16, 17 shoes all over the world because nobody else can buy them anywhere else. So 
I end up spending $200 on shoes because that's, you know, what you do when you need to buy very specific shoes. <laughs> and on that same day, I learned that my phone service was going to end due to a weird hiccup in my family's plan. Uh, so I had to go spend um, money on a new iPhone 12 to replace my iPhone 8. iPhone 12 is pretty neat. I'll give it that much. And on that same day, we officially signed the stuff to get uh, our floors replaced for the, the cheap builder grade tile on our home is being replaced with a hardwood vinyl. Uh, so, uh, Peter, um, if I'm eating saltine crackers for the next week, that is why. <laughs> oh, you went from iPhone 8 to the 12. That's a big yeah. step up. Yeah, but you know what, Peter? It doesn't seem that different to me. Other than a nicer camera, I don't, for what I use my phone for, I'm like, okay, it takes really nice pictures now, but what else? And my answer is, same damn thing. I listen to podcasts, I browse the internet, and I answer text messages. Is the screen size the same? Um, the one I got is, yeah. I think there, there was a larger one, uh, but I went with the regular size one because I'm, I didn't... My needs for my phone do not demand a super large screen. I, I will say that... It, it, it feels nice. I, it took me a little while to get used to not having a button. You have to you know swipe up from the very bottom now to close open yeah. apps and stuff. And I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. Uh, I, I missed that button really terribly. But uh, where is I, I can use a new phone, Peter, to check my empty bank account while I wear my new shoes <laughs> and while I prepare for people to come tear up all my floors. You know where I missed that button? I didn't miss that button until the pandemic, until we had to wear the masks. And the face ID just does not work with masks. And so it's like so aggravating. See, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not using face ID, Peter. I refuse to give Apple my face. <laughs> it, sta- it stays on your phone. It doesn't go to Apple. I don't believe that, Peter. I, this is this is the one conspiracy theory that I will embrace, uh, which is that I firmly believe every time you upload your face to anything, somebody in the NSA gets your face. So I'm not giving it my face. I'll say this. I, you know, I know I, I'm an Apple fanboy. I'll, I'll first admit that. And I'm a stockholder. So, you know, that put up in, in front here. But Apple seems to be one of the only big tech companies that really cares about privacy. And they will literally not give the government any of your information. A likely story, Peter. What, what, what amazing cover story Apple has as they feed all of your information to groups that now have all of your whereabouts locked down, Peter. The, the NSA knows when you go to the when you go to the store, Peter. They know when you're at Disneyland. If they need to send a drone after you, you're dead in a second. No, I mean, one, one moment you're riding Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at Disneyland, Peter. And next moment, the NSA has you dead by drone. You know, it, it's that fast, that simple. But remember, like, the, it didn't like the FBI or someone had like an iPhone that was part of an investigation and apple would not give them the encryption to unlock it i don't know they they refused like they went to court it, it was this big thing jacob i don't know anyway you are almost assuredly right peter i i i am <laughs> being very silly i just have an absolute paranoia about giving my face to anything i mean especially since all those like fun face apps like how you look if you're old a lot of those came <laughs> from strange chinese companies who probably have your face information now so i'm just not gonna risk it i'm not, I'm not even gonna remotely risk it peter yeah yeah uh, on the filmmaking side, I, I'm not sure if I've ever said this on the podcast, but I have some filmmaker friends who've, uh, you know, either done deals at Netflix or, I mean, done de- or like been try- trying to do deals at Apple. And, you know, over at Netflix, you know, the numbers and all that information is like a big deal. You know, that's how they make their decisions on what, you know, to acquire and what to make. Uh, you, you've read many stories on that. On Apple, a filmmaker who who is over at Apple does not get any information about how many people watched their thing, 
it, it, there's no analytics available because Apple says that the, the analytics do do not exist is what they claim because of the privacy concerns. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying that's how insane Apple is with the the whole privacy thing. Like they they don't track. I don't know. I, I'm assuming they they have a number of how many people played a thing, but. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Brad, what have you been reading this week? Um, so I uh, doing the thing that we, we do where we don't really read real books, but we look at uh, art of books about movies. Um, and I got a copy of the art of the Mitchells versus the Machines uh, sent to me. And uh, if you've seen the movie, you know that the animation is absolutely incredible, totally unique, uh, off the wall, and. Uh, the art book is such a cool dive into the development of the movie and just it, it really shows how they just didn't have any limitations as far as uh, ideas for just how to create the characters. And uh, there's spreads that show just so many different uh, character attempts and designs for uh, Katie as the main character. Uh, they tried all sorts of different looks for her. And one of the things that I, I really appreciate about the book is there's uh, spreads in it, too, that have these specific uh kind of like rules as things that as you animate a character of things that you should or shouldn't do with certain traits. Like um, there are specific mentions of like how uh, Katie's brother, Aaron, his tuft of hair on top of his head, like uh, shouldn't cover um, one of his eyebrows and that like his eyes are always asymmetrical. Um, and there's just like little details like that. And like there's close up um, images of like, the how they made the uh, the fingers irregular and showing how the hands look when they're gripping certain things like when Katie's holding her phone or her camera um and then there's like there's bigger stuff too where um we there's a there's a deleted scene that was recently posted online where the climax involved this big mecha furby but there was also another iteration where it involved um a giant mecha version of pal where uh the the phone who's the villain in the movie put itself into this what is essentially a giant transformer made up of a bunch of different appliances, computers, and vehicles that form this big giant robot body where like the fingers are construction excavators and like one arm is made up of a bunch of slot machines and dump trucks and police cars. Um, oh, I would have hated that. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, they, they clearly made a much better choice with what they ended up doing uh, with the climax, but I will say that the, the designs are very cool. And then, there's even there's another version of the mech that is just like um a, a, like a, po a polygonal version of like a giant robot that's almost like a different version of those uh, advanced security bots that you see uh, towards the the end of the third act. So they they had a lot of different ideas um, and a lot of the stuff looks cool, but you know what ended up movie is obviously ended up being the best decision. But uh, this book is so cool. I I just love looking at the artwork and there's just a lot of cool deep dives into these uh, rich details that you can see just how much you know, care they put into creating this uh, unique style. Yeah, I love these art of books. I'm going to check this one out. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, this past week, Jacob and I both got an advanced screener for Disney's Cruella. And I'll say I, I was not anticipating this one at all. I'd seen, I think, the first trailer and the first image, and it didn't really excite me much. Number one. Uh, as much of a Disney fan as I am, I think I'm the biggest Disney fanatic on this on this uh, panel here. I think the live action adaptations of the animated stuff have been, you know, iffy. Like some are good and some are really bad. Uh, 
And, and so that that was one thing that had me not in uh, not excited for this. And then number two, this is a prequel. Prequels are notoriously bad. Number three, this is a villain origin story, which those usually are not great because, well, you got to get us to care about the villain. And, you know, this one is a puppy killer. And I don't know. I, I just wasn't expecting much. I, I, I even put this on my TV and uh, Kendra didn't know what I was playing. And she said, oh, is this is Cruella. Like we were just like not looking forward to this movie. Uh, and I'm sure you're getting where the story is going. But by the end of this movie, I was like, wow, this movie was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it, it, is it great cinema? No, uh, it's bold. It is fun. It, it like the soundtrack is probably one of the most expensive soundtracks ever. It just has like such a rocking soundtrack. It's like Devil Smear, uh, Devil Wears Prada meets Revenge with like a heist kind of uh, subplot thing. It, it's, I don't know, it, it's a really a, a lot of fun. I was surprised at how much fun I had. I can highly recommend watching Disney's Cruella. I'm not sure if you want to pay for that. Uh, it's coming to Disney Plus on that premium, like where you have to pay for it. Uh, Premier Access. I'm not sure if it is worth paying for that, but uh, I would definitely watch it. Jacob, I know you are even more uh, cynical than me in terms of these Disney live action remakes. What did you think? Yeah, I think Disney live action remakes uh, largely really stink. Like, I think Maleficent and Lion King and Beauty and the Beast are all terrible movies. And Cruella. Jungle um, Book. Jungle, Jungle Book's okay. Yeah. It's it's okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I saw Cruella early because I did I did I did press for the film. I, I interviewed uh, some members of the cast. I'm doing the director Craig Gillespie very very soon, and I'm happy to admit I really liked this movie. And I hated the marketing. I thought it looked like trash. I didn't want a movie that uh, maybe empathize with a woman whose whole thing is she wants to murder puppies. Uh, but I think the wise thing that Cruella does is that it takes the tone of this character and her style and her attitude. And just rewrites it. It is. Just, I think Peter described this as a prequel. I wouldn't even call it a prequel because this is not the Corella we know from the original 101 Dalmatians movie. It's a completely different alternate universe taking the character, one who who likes dogs and who has dogs in active partner life. Uh, so this is not a, a case of you sympathizing with or rooting for somebody who's going to go on to want to kill animals. It's just a a a a really fun, stylish, family friendly crime story set in 1970s London in the fashion scene. And as Peter said, it has this really wild soundtrack and it's silly and stylish and the costumes are amazing. And Emma Stone is really bringing it. She's not phoning in Cruella. She's giving a really uh, emotional, funny, strange performance. And if you kind of divorce this from the Disney remake thing, it's except that Disney made a very expensive, lavish, you know, uh, 70s heist caper movie. (laughs) Um, uh, It has a lot of dogs and a lot of, you know, uh, family friendly uh, elements to it. Uh, Corello really works on its own, and there's some really, really ridiculous stuff in it. Uh, the the the, uh, the first 15 minutes deal with what happens to Corello's mother, and it's one of the most one of the silliest things I've seen in a long, long time. But once the film sort of settles into its into okay. its rhythm, into its plot, can I say that in the first yeah. 15 minutes, I was like, I'm gonna hate this movie. Yeah, the first 15 minutes are, are, are the weakest, um, as it's a. Uh, but once it really, once Emma Stone shows up as a, as a modern day Corello, the movie finds its gear and its rhythm, and it's a really fun time i mean it really like i said it plays more like a crime movie than a disney movie it's, it really has this unique vibe to it there's a uh 
Guy Ritchie back when he was good kind of vibe, <laughs> except that it's been except except you know it's PG thirteen I think so it definitely has that lighter air to it. Uh, maybe it's a bit too harsh and harsh at times for like you know younger children because the main characters are unapologetically criminals who are out for revenge and are out to commit crimes, which I enjoy. There's no real softening of Cruella as a as a character in that way. Uh, but if you're if you're a cool parent with cool kids, I think Cruella is going to be a real big hit with like parents who are you know slightly okay with their kids watching movies about people who spend two hours of a movie literally plotting revenge to destroy somebody's life, which is the plot of Cruella. Yeah. Um, And I do want to shout out to Paul Walter Hauser, who is like kind of like a supporting character. He's uh, one of the Cruella's friends or goons or I don't know how. uh, Henchmen. Yeah, henchmen. Uh, He steals like every scene he's in. He's so great. If you don't know who that is, he's the he was in uh, I, Tanya and Cobra Kai. He's just I I, I love seeing him in movies. He's good. Yeah, him and Joel Fry as um, Horace and Jasper, the two bumbling sidekicks from the original animated movie, uh, rev- revised here to be ultra competent and in Joel Fry's super sexy and Walter Hauser, Paul Roth's case, uh, comedic relief characters. Uh, they, they really work. And it's because there's no sense of, we got to set this up so they become the bumbling gates from the movie. It's very much take that take the fact that she had two sidekicks named Horace and Jasper and rewrite them to be completely different criminal characters. And like the same with Corella, like I said, not a puppy killer. They, they they simply take that name and that style and attach it to a, who feels like in many ways a brand new character. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this, Peter. I'm shocked how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, me too. Me too. Uh, Jacob, what else have you been watching? Yeah, I watched the first half of Haunted Season 3, a show I've talked about several times on this show. Uh, it's a Netflix series where people tell their quote-unquote true stories about, about being haunted by ghosts and demons, and very lavish and extremely well-produced uh, reenactments uh, occur. Uh, but Chris, you said you've watched the whole season, right? I sure have. Uh, it's great. I love this show. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, like every episode is like a mini horror movie, and it does this thing. You can sort of see through what they're doing because if you've never seen the show it, it's basically this so it, it's a, a real person sitting in a room with like their their friends or their relatives and the person tells the the, the friends relatives and also us the audience this you know horrifying uh, scary ghost thing that happened to them and the show does this thing where <laughs> the person will say something that's kind of mundane where they'll be like i heard a scary noise and then it'll cut to a reenactment where the scary noise is being caused by like a 20 foot skeleton demon that's like knocking shit over and it's like the person didn't say anything about this 20 foot skeleton demon you're just you're clearly just making this up but it's a lot of fun it's it's so well done and stylish and creepy it's one of the, the like the best versions of of these ghost shows i've i've seen and i think this this season is my favorite yet except for the last episode um it goes it's like basically the last episode the story is the guy is like i was haunted because i rejected jesus and i was like oh i don't i don't care about this like i don't you know like look no offense to people who are religious you know if you're if you're religious and you, you, you know, you, you believe in all that stuff, that's fine. But I don't want to see when I'm watching a ghost show, I don't want someone to be like the real haunting was my lack of faith. Like get the fuck out of here. I want to see ghosts. I don't want to see like 
some guy having a crisis of whether or not he's he's like Christian especially if enough. it's played as like a twist or something it's not like up front like that's what you're watching right yeah like it unfold and like i don't know and the, i don't know the, the last episode is the only one i didn't like but beyond that great season spooky stuff going on there's there's this one episode like the first episode is about like this couple that moves into like this cabin in the woods and they they're like a hundred percent convinced a serial killer used to live there even though there's like not really any evidence of that but it doesn't matter because the show just completely adopts that theory and gives us flashbacks to the serial killer and stuff like that so like i, I i'm making the show sound like it's bullshit and it is it's a hundred percent bullshit but it's very entertaining bullshit yeah, it's it's absolutely one of my. I hesitate to say guilty pleasure because you should enjoy what you enjoy when it comes to you know things that you actively like watching. Uh, but Haunted is, oh man, I have such a blast with it, and the fact that you know each episode is you know twenty to thirty five minutes long means that you're essentially getting a really high quality uh, horror movie on fast forward because the reenactments are, are like they're like Conjuring level. They look there's actual c- cinema in them. They're really well made. They're they. Uh, they're well lit. The, the, the creature effects, especially in the later seasons, look really good. Uh, I think Haunted is it's it is one of the great you know let's settle in with a beer or a cocktail and watch six horror movies in three hours kind of feeling. Okay, where can people watch Haunted? Uh, Netflix. Netflix. Okay, moving on. Uh, I know people. I, I have <laughs> tweets and uh, emails from people because they like. Uh, sometimes I watch TV shows that people have not heard of. It's uh, outside of the you know the usual buzz that you see on like film Twitter and just like uh, what's trending. And I came across a show. I don't know how I came across it, but I came across this show called Cruel Summer, and the show is on Freeform. Don't leave me yet. Okay, don't don't, don't fast forward. This is the first show I've ever watched on Freeform. Freeform is the network that used to be ABC Family. Um, I I forget how I found the show, but but okay, let me let me give you the pedigree here. So, Cruel Summer is a show that's created by and written by the writer who did Easy A. We liked Easy A. Easy A was great, and this show is in the same wheelhouse. It's about um some uh some teenagers in high school some uh female teenagers in high school and it's direct the first episode the pilot episode is directed by max winkler who is the son of henry winkler and he's had some some good uh films that played at film festivals like he had this film called flower and this other one called ceremony which i think i saw in toronto many years ago um and okay so let me give you what the pitch of this is and i'm not going to spoil anything outside of like the first five minutes of the show. So don't, don't worry. None of the, some of this might sound like spoilers. It isn't. Um, so the show takes place in three years. It takes place in 1993, 1994 and 1995. And it follows this main girl. She's kind of a wallflower. She only has two friends in high school. She's, uh, you know, uh, kind of like an outcast. Like she's, uh, has braces, hasn't uh, um, like, like quote unquote blossomed or whatever. And, um, you know, she's celebrating her birthday. And oh, and that's the other thing about the show. So the show takes place on those three years on the same day. So this first episode takes place on her birthday, which is in the summer of 1993, 1994, 95. So uh, 
that that is the setup in 93 that she's kind of like this wallflower in 1994 we cut to her in 1994 and she's all of a sudden a popular girl in high school she's actually there was a popular girl in high school that has gone missing and has been missing for months she's either been abducted or has been killed and she's kind of basically uh, you know, the braces are off. Uh, she looks like a teenager now, and she's somehow in the social circle, joined this kind of uh, mean girl, popular group, uh, replaced this girl that's been gone missing. And uh, in 1995, we learn uh, that uh, her parents have like, something's wrong with their relationship and uh oh she's going to have a meeting with her lawyer about the trial that's upcoming because she's somehow accused of being responsible for whatever happened to the popular girl so uh this is a show about an abduction it's told over uh three different years uh, from the cool thing I think about the show is definitely the timeline aspect of it because it lets you explore these events that happen, you know, every year, like, you know, a birthday, a, you know, a town party that happens every summer, a July 4th. And it shows you how this town is affected over these events, how, uh, these people change, how the dynamics of, uh, this town play out. And it has some really, um, it's some really uh, interesting twists and turns that you don't see coming. Um, I, I'm not sure if, if this was told linearly and not like cutting between these three different timelines, would it be as good? No, but I, I, I think I've watched five or six episodes of this. It's, it's still in its first season, so I've not completed it. But um, and also I should say that the characters, they don't like when they cut from like 1993 to 1994 to 1995, they don't like put on screen the year. Like you can just tell where they are based on how the characters look because the characters have, even though it's only been a year, but they have dramatically different appearances. Um, I don't know. I'm really enjoying the show. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I can recommend it for everybody, but if, the, if this sounds interesting to you, if, if you were someone who liked, you know, shows of this ilk like uh, i guess i don't know what is of this ilk pretty but little liars <laughs> it sounds like yeah something similar to that yeah peter yeah. i watched i watched the first episode of this at south by southwest uh it actually is very good for what it is it is probably one of the high quality uh extreme dark teen soaps out there if if, if you like you know really trashy you know dark uh soap opera stuff uh this is probably the highest quality <laughs> version of that you could possibly find <laughs> I keep seeing ads for this on Instagram. That might be how you how you uh, learned about it, Peter, because oh, maybe. it keeps showing up on my Instagram, which means that they're definitely trying to target a certain demographic on Instagram, just like the young teen girls. So um, I guess I'm <laughs> in that too or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, I haven't checked it out, but I yeah, watched the trailer on Instagram and I was like, what is this? And then I looked up the Wikipedia synopsis, which spoiled the whole thing. So I don't know if oh, I'll be watching it. Okay. <laughs> I would say watch the first episode. I, I give the first episode a chance because it's very interesting how it's being done. I don't know any of the people in it. Olivia Holt is someone we know. She's uh, what is she in? She's in uh, actually maybe not. I don't know. I clicked on her IMDb. Uh, but uh, Harley Quinn Smith, the daughter of Kevin Smith, is in this. I didn't know that before playing this. 
And generally, I have not liked her and things, but in this, she's she's fine. She's good. Okay. Anyway, so that's Cruel Summer. It's on Freeform, which I think you can watch on. I think we're watching on Hulu. Sounds about right. Yeah, Hulu. Chris, what have you been watching? I watched The Woman in the Window, which is the long-delayed Joe Wright, Amy Adams movie based on uh, the the bestseller of the same name. And uh, not surprising, it's bad. Um, This movie has been delayed several times. Uh, It was delayed prime... This was before even the pandemic started. It It was delayed because test screenings were just reportedly really bad and so they went back and reshot a bunch of shit and uh i am here to say the reshoots did not help anything if anything they probably made the movie worse because it's just very uh poorly put together and it's it's almost like a surreal experience because pretty much everyone involved with this thing is crazy talented you know amy adams great one of the, the best actresses working right now uh, Tracy Letts wrote the screenplay. Tracy Letts is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. He wrote uh, August Osage County and he wrote uh, Killer Joe and a bunch of other things. He's a he's an award winning writer. Uh, you know, Julianne Moore is in this. Gary Oldman is in this. Uh, Joe Wright is a good director. He directed this. So it, it's like you would think having all of these very talented people together in one movie, it would just sort of like accidentally be a good movie but it's not it's just really bad and it it's it's so bad that it gets very close to sort of campy so bad it's good territory i don't think it it quite gets there because it's taking itself very seriously and i think that's part of the problem too but it's borderline so bad it's good it's just just bombastic nonsense um the, the story is you know, it's basically a rear window. Um, uh, Amy Adams is this agoraphobic person who who's spying on her neighbors and she thinks she witnessed a uh, murder across the street, but there's all this evidence suggesting that she didn't. So uh, there's a chance she might be crazy, but she knows she's not crazy and she's trying to uh, get to the bottom of the mystery, but that's hard to do because she can't leave her house. And, you know, you could, in theory, make a good movie about this. You could, you know, it wouldn't be the most original movie ever made, but I feel like if like someone like David Fincher, who seems to really understand how to make these sort of trashy things seem better than they are, like you could do something like that. But Joe Wright is clearly the wrong person for this. And it's, it's a big mess. So the woman in the window now streaming on Netflix, um, you know, it's a morbid curiosity. I guess you could watch it. Uh, so yeah, that's that. Um, I also watched last action hero, which has a new 4k Blu-ray. It just came out on 4k Blu-ray and I got sent that. And this is of course, uh, an infamous box office disaster. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger's first real flop after a string of, of massive hits. And uh, basically everyone knew while they were making this, it was not going to be good. But the understanding was, look, it's got Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. How can it, how can it go wrong? And uh, (laughs) obviously everyone knows it did go wrong. Um, That said, I've always had sort of a, uh, a soft spot for this movie. I, I do think it has a lot of problems. There's a lot of dumb shit in this movie and a lot of the jokes do not work. I mean, you could, I suppose, (laughs) I suppose you could argue that a lot of the jokes are bad on purpose because they're sort of sending up 
what are you talking about? Throwing a mobster named, uh, what is it, Leo Le- DeFart? Leo DeFart, yes. Oh, in, my God. <laughs> in, in, into the Le Brea tar pits, and then he yes. farts? That's oh not my God. That's not good? Get just get out of here. Just terrible. <laughs> like, there's just terrible shit in here. But there's also a lot of just entertaining stuff. And the action is really well shot, you know, because it's, you know, back in the 90s when everything wasn't, you know, CGI. So they had to do all these stunts practically so you know there's really people hanging off of helicopters and there's real explosions and there's real car crashes and you know that stuff uh it's fun to watch movies from the 90s and remember back when they did all these things practically and uh while the i think his name is austin o'brien the kid in the movie is just oh my god just terrible just a whiny annoying piece of shit like shut up kid while he's terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger is really trying. He's trying so hard to make all of this work. Um, Charles Dance is having a lot of fun as the villain. So Last Action Hero, it's better than his reputation suggests. It's not, I would say, good, but it's it's a very watchable bad movie. I'm, so I'm, I'm sorry, but, I'm sorry, Chris. This Last Action Hero is purely a good movie. It's yes, <laughs> Brad it's, is right. It's 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 meta take <laughs> on, agree, on it's, it's meta take on action movies is hilarious. I think a lot of the stupid stuff that you're talking about in the movie is intentional. It's making fun of silly things in action movies. Schwarzenegger is awesome in it. I think the kid is perfectly annoying because it's exactly who he's supposed to be. There's just there's so many awesome things in this movie. I, I absolutely love it and I, I've never understood the hate for it. I'm not saying I hate it. Jesus Christ. I, didn't... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know you're not saying you hate it, but there are a lot of people who just think that it's bad. And I just, I, I've always thought this movie is so, is so good. Well, having rewatched it last night, uh, I can say that it has a lot of bad stuff in it, but it's a lot better than everyone says it is. And it looks great in 4K. The 4K looks fucking fantastic. It looks like just crisp and cool and everything looks great. So... It's definitely worth picking up on 4K. I this say. conversation isn't over until Ben Pearson chimes in at Last Action Hero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. That's a lot of pressure to put on me for the final word on Last Action Hero. No, this movie is uh, its fun. I, I, I'm with Chris. There's a mixture of really like amusing stuff in here. And like I really cannot stand the the lead performance from that kid. Uh, it really, like I feel like if that uh, performance, if that actor was swapped out with somebody else, the overall quality of this movie would would skyrocket by like absolutely. 20 or 30 percent or something absolutely every time he's just like come on jack like oh yeah. <laughs> like just shut up you annoying bastard <laughs> i don't know i i love this movie like the wish fulfillment of like being in a movie theater and getting sucked in to like your favorite action uh hero i don't know it's it's yeah so there's good. some great stuff in it it's just that the performance is so grating but it's, yeah if you can a, get over that then uh it's then a great a it's a great idea it has great ideas in it not all of them are executed well but again it's better than its reputation suggests i absolutely understand why this was not a big hit but i do think it's aged better than uh, the reaction it, it got when it first came out see this is the type of movie that should have should be remade like, not with Arnold sort you know, should be rebooted. Like, the potential here is, I guess there's no reason to reboot it because it's widely considered as a failure. Well, and well also, so, who, who do you remake it with who has the same status as Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, there's like maybe, there's maybe, no, maybe like, Tom Cruise, but I don't think he has the comedic capacity to pull off a role like that. Yeah, we don't really have... Like, I, I know, and I know he's great in Tropic Thunder, but... And he, but, but Yeah, but I don't know. I There's something about the performance that, like needs to be played 
like it's there, there's like a certain wink uh, to the performance that I don't think Tom Cruise has because when Tom Cruise does something comedic, it's because he's playing things very genuinely and authentically. And they're I don't I don't know how to how to properly explain. Yeah, that. no, I know what you're saying. I feel like The Rock maybe ten years ago would have been really also like good. Tom Cruise now is it's you can't overstate how big a star Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. was when this came out. Like it was he was like unstoppable. And Tom Cruise, while you know he's he's a he's like one of our last movie stars, he really doesn't make a lot of hits when he strays away from you know mission impossible every yeah. time he tries to make like a recent movie that's not mission impossible no one really seems to care so at you know when this came out Arnold schwarzenegger was literally like on top of the world and that was sort of the reason why no one was like double checking things when they were making this because they were like how can it fail everybody loves arnold schwarzenegger and uh they learned their lesson the hard way yeah i, I think the big difference between him and tom cruise beyond the, the levels of stardom is that Arnold Schwarzenegger is very clearly aware of the fact that a bodybuilder with an Austrian accent has no business being a movie star, and yet here he is, and he leans into that so hard, Last yeah. Action Hero. <laughs> uh, he is very self-aware of who he is as a person, whereas uh, Tom Cruise, uh, I, don't, I think, is uh, he's, he has an impressive focus for what he does, but I also think that he's blissfully or, or ignorant of how the world perceives him. Uh, let's put it that way. Okay, my pitch is you do this with the Fast and the Furious movies. What, like a kid goes into yes. the Fast and the Furious movies? Yeah. I guess that could work, as long yeah. as it's not awesome. Except I'm a, a kid, kid that's all they... about the family. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if it's Ben, I would watch this. Adult Ben Pearson <laughs> yes. getting sucked into the. But I want like Fast and the Furious super fan who's all about like you know hashtag family hashtag justice for Han and like he gets into put into the situation where like in the in the movie things are like super serious you know what i mean but he's the only one that doesn't he he's the he's the audience surrogate who understands how ridiculous everything is this is okay under one condition they, they have to bring back ian mckellen as ingmar bergman's death from the yes, he has to show up <laughs> driving like a, a really fast car he's like driving a monster truck or something i will say that part of the fun of last action hero is all the meta commentary it does on like the action movies of the eighties and nineties. And Oh yeah. I, I feel like that, that there isn't as many of like the same cliches these days or not, not the mm. same cliches, but like, is there I like, think, I think today, to today it would probably have to be a superhero movie that they did. Yeah. It would have to yeah. be yeah, something about superheroes, which is just depressing me to think about. Let's move on. Oh my so, God. <laughs> I miss, I miss the old days. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Uh, like you know what? Technically, Shane Black, who wrote this, kind of did that with Iron Man three. Yes, and everyone hates it, even though I think it's fantastic. Yeah. So I don't it's know great. what the lesson here is. The lesson Iron here Man is three everyone... is great. It's yeah. great. I love Iron yeah. Man three. Is my favorite Iron Man movie, and the fact that people act like agreed, yeah, it's like a failure just pisses me off to no end. <laughs> yeah. Top five Marvel, honestly, absolutely. Yep. Fantastic movie. No one and no one seems to care except us on this podcast. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Ben. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, so I watched a movie called Confidentially Connie that came out in 1953. It stars uh, Janet Leigh, who is uh, in Psycho, and um, Van Johnson, who I recently talked about in a movie called Brigadoon. And the reason I watch this is because uh, sometimes on my DVR I will scroll through the lineup of what's coming up on Turner Classic Movies and just read the synopses for movies that I've never heard of and just, you know, uh, general browsing. And uh, I came across this synopsis and I just had to watch this movie. And I'm going to read you some of the synopsis here. 
Connie Bedlow, Janet Lee, knows what she wants, red meat. The expectant mother is positively insatiable when it comes to steaks, chops, and roasts. Unfortunately, her culinary cravings have little chance of being satisfied because her husband, Joe, collects a very small paycheck as a poetry teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but that is the, the first couple sentences of this thing. And I'm like, wait, the premise of the movie is a woman likes steak but can't have it? I have to check this out. I have to see what's going on here. So um, the actual movie is... Uh, it's like surprisingly like pretty decent. Uh, it's very short. It's like an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and it's not necessarily as uh, over the top as that synopsis makes it sound, which makes it sound like, you know, Janet Lee is just like pulling her hair out, running through a small town, like begging for, for, uh, it the... sounds like she's like a zombie right. or a vampire. Like I need right. blood. Help. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what I kind of thought it was going to be. It is absolutely not that at all. Um, she does <clears throat> talk about how she really wants meat and like, she has conversations with fellow townspeople who live, I think they live in Maine and, um, they live in a small college town. And really what the movie is about is, um, like uh, how society undervalues teachers because her husband, the the Joe character played by Van Johnson is this poetry teacher. He's like a professor at the, at a nearby college. And basically everybody in this small town works for this college in some capacity and they're, they're underpaid. So they can't, they literally can't afford to buy, you know, uh, lamb chops for their family and stuff like that. And, and it's really like this sort of indictment of, uh, you know, how, how the, the education system is not valued enough in American society for people to, uh, you know, this movie, like I said, came out in the early 1950s. Conversations about how teachers are underpaid are still going on now. This is a conversation that's been going on for, what, 60 years at least. Um, so it's just kind of wild to think about, like, you know, people were still um, having these conversations so many years ago. Um, but uh, the the real sort of thrust of the movie is, uh, the Joe character, his dad owns a cattle ranch in, I think, Texas and uh, comes to visit this family and just realizes like that everybody in the small town is, um, you know, is is not in a financial position to be able to to afford buying themselves uh, meat. And like they they think that um, I have no idea if this is like medically accurate or not, but maybe it was back in the time or maybe they thought it was at the time that like pregnant women should be eating meat to like help the baby grow up to be strong and all of that kind of stuff. I have no idea what the, what the, um, the science says about that, but this grandfather character, uh, or this, this father character, um, the Joe's dad who comes in this cattle rancher just sort of like takes pity on, on the people in this town and like learns to, to value teachers. He, he's very, um, sort of like dismissive of, of the profession when he rolls in. And after spending time with these folks, he just like learns this lesson of like, oh, wow, they're actually making a difference in kids' lives. And this is a really important cause and all this stuff. So it's, it's a very um, sort of a 180 from that, uh, yeah, vampiric uh, sort of uh, description that, that Chris sort of read into it. I had that same sort of uh, uh, read on this when I, I first watched it. But anyway, if it's, it's like I would say a curiosity, but uh, kind of an interesting movie. So it's called Confidentially Connie. It is streaming on uh, the Watch TCM app, if you have that, or I guess you can get it if you have DirecTV. So that is one thing. And then I watched a movie called Summertime. Has anybody here seen this movie? It was written and directed or co-written and directed by uh, David Lean. Do you guys know this movie at all, Summertime? No. Okay. I had never heard of it. 
and it stars Catherine Hepburn, and it is shot entirely in the city of Venice, Italy. And it is like one of the best vacation movies I've ever seen. It's all about Catherine Hepburn's character who uh, comes from uh, Akron, Ohio, and she ha- is taking a summer vacation in Venice. And um, it the movie begins with her on a train, like pulling into the city. And literally the entire thing is just shot inside the city. And she's just walking around and, and sort of taking in all of the sights. And she has a little handheld uh, video camera where she is... Um, it's it's basically like you are going on a guided tour of the city of Venice circa 1955, which is kind of amazing. Um, so just as a, uh, you know, a tourist snapshot kind of uh, piece of filmmaking, it's, it's really great. And then she is, um, she's this middle-aged woman. She's alone and sort of like, you know, happy with her life, but um, want maybe wanting a little bit more or always wanting like a little sense of adventure. And then she meets this Italian man, who is played by uh, Rosanna Brazzi and they have a, uh, yeah, a sort of like summer fling romance in the city of Venice. So that movie is, is called summertime. It's uh, the, the relation, the central relationship between them gets a little, um, a little weird at times, but uh, overall I think it's, uh, it's something that I can recommend to people if for no other reason than just the, the setting is just absolutely gorgeous. And uh, Catherine Hepburn is great as always. So uh, the movie's called summertime. It is on, HBO Max right now, if you want to check that one out. And then finally, I watched uh, some more of Star Trek Lower Decks. The Blu-ray of the first season is out right now, and uh, Paramount Plus sent that to me. And I've watched the first five episodes so far, and it's so funny. This show is so, so funny. I know we talked about it when the pilot first came out, um, and I was amused by the pilot. And I've seen all of the Star Trek movies, but I've never dived into the uh, any of the shows at all. Um, I know that's obviously uh, Jacob and HT's territory right now and with the podcast that they co-host. Um, but even as somebody with just like a, a vague sense of, um, you know, what's going on in the star, the larger Star Trek lore, I really think Star Trek Lower Decks is like a great entry point for people. Um, even if maybe you've just seen like the J.J. Abrams movies or something like that, like the, the more recent uh, theatrical efforts, I don't think there's anything in here that is really going to go too far over your heads. There is some stuff buried in there that is like deep cut references for people who really uh, love this, you know, all of the franchise, the franchise in all of its entirety. Um, There's like a really great joke where one of the characters is trying to figure out uh, the identity of a, uh, a woman that, that has come onto the ship and she's got this red yarn wall with all these photos of like suspects of who she could be. And uh, there's just a, a picture of a whale off in one corner. And it's like, Oh, that's a reference to that Star Trek movie where they go and there's time traveling whales and it's all weird, but uh, they don't ever actually call attention to it. It's just like that kind of thing. that's just like peppered throughout the background. But um, there are several moments in, in, each episode of the show where I actually laugh out loud, which is more than I can say for a lot of, uh, you know, other traditional TV comedies these days. So um, it's very, very funny. It's really smart, really well-written. I love the characters. And uh, I think there's 10 episodes in the first season. I've just seen the first five, but man, it's it's so much fun. So the, like I said, the Blu-ray is out right now and the, um, the show is streaming on Paramount Plus if you want to check that out, Star Trek Lower Decks. Jacob, I know you've already talked about this on this podcast, but do you have anything to add? No, it's great. I was actually going to ask Ben uh, how the referential humor played if you weren't a huge Star Trek fan, because so many of the so many of the of my favorite gags are extreme deep cuts. Like HG has not seen the show yet uh, for the podcast because we're still covering original series, and this show is set firmly in the Next Generation era. We know which you know from, from Next Generation, Space Nine, and Voyager. Uh, 
and but yet there's so many jokes that um are both appeal to people who have never seen star trek like you know or no only the basics like ben but also like there's just a there's an episode of original series called um called return of the archons and the main villain from return of the archons is referenced in a throwaway gag where it is just it's just like one of those like Maybe, is that the the ball of energy thing at the beginning of one of the episodes? Yeah, it, it, it's an episode where uh, where a evil computer runs a civilization that's stuck in the eighteen hundreds, and Kirk and Spock defeated by yelling at it to death, and <laughs> and um, and then pretty much the, the crew of this ship they, who whose whole mission is like essentially do all the dirty work, all the unexciting dirty work around the galaxy. They had they do a regular check in just to make sure that Landru, the evil computer, is not trying to start an uprising again. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it, it's a funny gag if you like just because they're they're talking to a, a computer and telling it not to start an uprising, but you realize, oh crap, that's Landru from Return of the Archons. <laughs> it's just like a real it's made it's made with so much love. It's a yeah, show. It's I made think with love. It's, it's super smart in that way because like if you don't understand that reference, it's still funny. Like it's written in a way where the joke still lands, and then it just is it, it deepens if you have that extra knowledge so i would really encourage people to check this out I, I really like i said i think it's like one of the one of the funniest uh comedies that i've seen in a, in a while so it's it's very very good okay let's move on to brad brad what have you been watching um i watched those who wish me dead uh which is a new action thriller uh in theaters and on hbo max uh it stars angelina jolie and it's kind of this throwback um uh, action thriller that's like in the style of movies from the 90s stuff like uh cliffhanger and movies of of that ilk and uh for the most part i enjoyed it um except i feel like angelina jolie was sorely miscast in this movie um because while she does have the accolades of doing action thrillers uh and, and movies like this she just doesn't really seem like she fits the bill of this character and for some reason, they it takes far too long for her to get like down and dirty, and she looks too much like a movie star for most of the movie before she starts, you know, uh, getting you know dirt on her face and getting cut up and and whatnot. And it's just it's just it really takes you out of it. But everything else surrounding it, uh, surrounding her in the movie, just really fits the bill of this kind of old school '90s movie. And so it's it's not great. It's it's enjoyable. Um, and I think uh, Aiden Gillen and Nicholas Holt as as the villains are are a lot of fun. Uh, John Barenthal in it is good as well, and so is uh, Medina Sangor. But um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fine for for the most part. It's uh, um, there's some pretty you know, some relatively brutal uh, you know a- action sequences in it, um, and there's also some weird stuff in it that it's like um, that makes it feel like. It's it's a it's a script that has maybe been sitting on a shelf somewhere for a long time, um, but that's also part of what made it you know a little bit more endearing than it might have been um, if it had you know some more contemporary touches. Um, so yeah, those who wish me dead. That's available on, on HBO Max and uh, in in theaters right now. Okay, and then and um, I also uh, rewatched Clifford. Um, for those who didn't see, uh, Charles Grodin unfortunately passed yesterday. And obviously, he's had done a lot of great uh, comedic roles over the years. He's, he's just a fantastic, uh, deadpan, you know, cranky comedic actor. And Clifford is one of the movies that uh, it was a huge bomb, and it was just blasted by critics. But it has a cult following. I think that some people have come around in this movie because um, I, I saw this movie. I caught it randomly as a kid because as a kid, 
I really liked Martin Short. Um, I, I grew up watching Three Amigos and Father of the Bride and uh, his appearances on um, Saturday Night Live and things like that. And so I love Martin Short. And I, I hadn't heard about this movie. I happened to see it on a movie channel. And I was so perplexed to see him playing a, a child as this, you know, for, like, he's like a 40-something old man at this point, I think. And he's playing, you know, like this 11-year-old kid. And it's just played straight. Like, <laughs> no acknowledgement of, like, just how, how, how weird it is. Uh, and Charles Grodin plays his Uncle Martin, who takes care of him for a little bit. And, you know, Clifford is just this just crazy, you know, mischievous, you know, rascal of a, of a kid. And I think this movie is so funny because of the dynamic between Martin Short and Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin is so perfectly grumpy and just like some of the line deliveries he has in this movie are just so perfect and like no one else can deliver them like Charles Grodin. And then you have Martin Short's physical comedy that I, th I feel like is is underrated in this movie uh, from his facial expressions to his body language and just how he carries himself as a kid. Um, like I, I just I, I think this movie is genuinely funny and it like it feels like it's kind of in the same level of weirdness as like um uh a hot rod you know or, or some, something like that uh like I, this feels like a movie that like the lonely island could have made you know back in the early 90s um and so this is it, this isn't obviously one of charles Grodin's you know most praised efforts but i love him in this movie um and it's if you want to watch it, if you've never seen it if you've never heard of it it's on hbo max right now um and i really do think it's worth just checking out just just for the sheer oddity of it um even if you end up not thinking that it's that it's good or you think it's stupid it's just it's just fun to watch any other love here for clifford that sounds about right <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on to ht what have you been watching well i have returned to new york and i have attended my first in-person screenings in over a year, which was a very exciting experience for me. I sat in a row to myself and uh, with my mask on and talked to no one. <laughs> yeah, um, well, before you get to the movie, like, what was that like? How many people were in the theater? How did well, it work? Well, the movies I went to, uh, were, which were A Quiet Place, part two, and um, In the Heights were both press screenings. Uh, they were at the AMC Lincoln uh, Square Theater. And uh, so it's a, it's a regular theater, but just with a handful of press people so it was pretty empty and you basically got to have a row to yourself which was nice but it, they were pretty lax in terms of uh where you could sit you can just like choose a place and they would say like oh you know sit farther from people if you can but it was mostly by choice but for the quiet place two, part two one they did um temperature check and stuff but uh, i think it's starting to uh especially now that vaccines and everything and masks are starting to be lifted uh it might become more lax so, uh, the first movie I watched was yeah. A Quiet Place Part 2, and it's fine. I was kind of looking forward to this one because I really liked A Quiet Place. Um, it's such a an experiential, almost immersive type of horror film that it feels more akin to a roller coaster in a way because it's all about that sound design and all about that communal experience uh, versus being just you know, a straightforward horror movie, even though it is a great, uh, really competently directed horror movie. And A Quiet Place Part 2 uh, picks up with the Abbott family after they've burned their home and uh, survived the attack by the, the monsters, by the aliens. And um, they meet Killian Murphy's fellow survivor who is kind of 
exactly who, the kind of character you would expect in this sort of post-apocalyptic story. He is a grieving father and widower. He is downing his his problems in a bottle, fast depleting bottle of alcohol, and uh, he doesn't want to be associated with anyone. He's all alone, and his it's his job to have his walls broken down by um, Millicent Simmons' character, uh, the spunky young girl, and they kind of go off and do their own um, wary like father, old father old cantankerous father figure with spunky young girl storyline that you see in a lot of post-apocalyptic films, um, which is the best part of the film. But um, the movie itself, I think having lost the novelty of the first movie and uh, reining back on the whole sound aspect, it's less, it's less so about, about that sound element uh, and more just about being a a typical post-apocalyptic thriller, uh, it just kind of falls a little flat. It doesn't fa- it doesn't ca- capture what made the first movie so special and just kind of becomes that kind of run-of-the-mill sci-fi movie, which is fine, but, uh, and, you know, it's well-directed. John Christensen uh, shows that he is a good director, uh, but maybe not the best writer. There's a lot more plot contrivances and plot holes uh, this time around than in the first movie. Uh, which I know people have pointed out for the first movie too. But yeah, kind of a a disappointment after the first movie, but still a totally fine uh, horror movie slash thriller movie. So uh, it is is fun to see in theaters, but um, I don't think it has that same big, you know, communal experience as that first movie. Hmm. But that might be because there wasn't that many people in your theater. That might be. That's true. They did have some good jump scares, some pretty effective jump scares that, um, you know, still played with the sound, but it was less about that than the first movie was. Okay. And tell us about In the Heights. In the Heights. I liked it. I know that um, Chris and Jacob have both talked about it a little bit, so I won't go too long on it. Um, And I agree with them in that it's definitely too long. It could have been trimmed a lot. Uh, and that there are a couple of plot threads that felt like could have either been cut entirely or just been um, consolidated or something. But I I really enjoyed it. It felt so uh, fun and joyous and energetic. And I actually do think that there is um, musical language that John Chu has a handle of. It's not the typical splashy Broadway musical language, but I do think that he's doing something very specific with this movie and um, that is more tied to the, in the Heights, Washington Heights, Washington Heights as a neighborhood versus being more interested in being a traditional musical. Um, and I think that a lot of his uh, his roots in the Step Up, Step, step up, yeah, the Step Up movies uh, and like the break dancing and all of the dance movies definitely play into how he chooses to film the musical sequences, which are great and are really fun. Um, and yeah, sometimes could be, I think, more interestingly shot, but I think he does enough with it that I really liked the look and the feel of this movie. It's just so joyous. I love all the uh, the performances. Uh, Anthony Ramos is a lot of fun. Uh, as are the supporting actors who I don't have in front of me right now. But um, I, yeah, I really enjoyed In the Heights. Um, and I will have the, a review for it coming up later. You can also see my A Quiet Place Part 2 review on the site. Okay. And you finally got to see Mitchells vs. Machines. Yes. 
I am the last person to watch Michels versus the Machines, and uh, I watched it with my sister, who I was really excited to watch with because I thought that she would like it. She did not like it, unfortunately. Even though there's she, there's a lot of fun parallels between uh, our 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 uh, like sibling dynamic to the movie. I think she's she is a paleontologist, <laughs> so the the younger brother being a uh, dinosaur geek and the older sister being a a film nerd I thought was a really funny parallel and she was like ha that's funny and then no interest whatsoever but I (laughs) other than that I won't go long on on this movie I think it's great Uh, I think it's that the use of 3d animation is so innovative and stylized and um, just uh, fantastic to watch Um, my one criticism with it is that I think the very specific contemporary references that it makes and and that it's about which is about like the internet and meme culture and that love letter to that sort of globalized um internet society like digital society as well as the dangers of ais who are evil um i think that i don't know how well it will age uh, because it's it, there's so many specific cultural references in there. And even a couple of the references I felt have aged already a little. Um, and I wonder how well the movie will hold up in like five or ten years. Um, but otherwise, I really liked Mitchell and the Machines. Great movie. Uh, and then, and next I watched, um, now that I'm back in New York, I've also seen more things in theaters. Uh, the, the film, the Lincoln Center... Uh, Film at Lincoln Center is holding a Wong Kar Wai's retrospective. They're showing all of his movies on the big screen. And I've seen none of his movies on the big screen before. I've only seen them on my TV. And um, I was really excited to check out a couple that I haven't seen before. And I watched Days of Being Wild, which is his um, 1990 movie that stars Leslie Chung, Andy Lau, Maggie Chung, Karina Lau, and Jackie Chung, with a cameo appearance by Tony Leung, which I actually did not expect. And um, this movie t- uh, follows a sort of playboy uh, in Hong Kong, played by Leslie Chung, who is known for uh, just breaking women's hearts and leaving a trail of, of broken hearts and destruction in his wake. And uh, he he is he his story and his various relationships with the with the woman, including Maggie Chung and uh, Karina Lau, uh, takes up the majority of the first half of the film, which is um, much slower and much more moody than I expected. Uh, I think coming off of ha- having recently watched Chunking Express and this being one of his earlier movies, I expect this to have the same energy and excitement and style that Chunking Express did. Um, but this was much more slower paced and slow burning uh, which I appreciate but I think that especially with that first half of the film following Leslie Chung's character who is extremely unlikable uh, and has a screen presence which is not really on par with a lot of other Ankar Wai protagonists I just did not find him interesting to watch or likable in any sense so I was like why are we spending so much time with this guy and it the movie does pick up once uh, Andy Lau shows up as um, this policeman character who has a sort of unconsummated fling with with Maggie Chung's character uh, and when he actually gets to have some scenes with with um with uh, Leslie Chung's character and they they clash and Leslie Chung's character gets more revelation of why the way he, why he is the way he is it 
does come together more. But I, uh, yeah, I, this is probably my least favorite of the Wong Kar Wai films that I've seen so far. Even though I did, I did like a lot of aspects of it. And um, this is, I was surprised to learn too that this is the first in sort of the informal trilogy that makes up. Um, Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love, and then 2046. And uh, there, it's interesting, too, because Maggie Chung plays the same character, technically. Her, the character's name is the same, but there's really no connection to In the Mood for Love except for the characters. And then Tony Leung popping up for a single scene where he doesn't say a word. So that was interesting. It's an interesting film. Um, I feel like I need to see it again to appreciate it more, but um, I I feel like uh, I, I wish I liked... Um, Leslie Chung's character and his performance a lot more than I did. So that's Days of Being Wild. And you started watching Invincible. Yes, I am uh, late on board the train to Invincible, which is the uh, animated series on Amazon based on the Robert Kirkman comics. It follows a teenage boy uh, named Mark Grayson, played by Stephen Yun who is the son of a superhero and has been waiting for his powers to arrive. And when he finally does get his powers, he uh, trains to become the superhero um, that he aspires to be, which is his, uh, and in his father's shadow. And um, it's a really, it's, it's kind of, it's latest in a long line of sort of edgy superhero shows uh, or titles that, uh, man, attempt to subvert the superhero genre by being extremely brutal and hyper-violent. Um, but I actually appreciate that Invincible, despite its being in that vein, doesn't do the shock and violence for shock's sake. It's, I feel like, especially with the throwback animation style that it has, which is very simple. It almost feels like it's inspired by the animation of uh, superhero shows from the 90s and early 2000s, that it's calling back to this simpler um, shows of our childhood in an attempt to lull you into a sense of security before they suddenly, you know, chop people's heads off. Uh, and I appreciate that. I think that it created an interesting dialogue between the optimism of both this style of show, as well as the main character, and the violence and cynicism of today's superhero landscape so i think that it it's in between that kind of interesting intersection um and yeah i i quite like it i think that the performances are great steven yun um uh sandra oh and for some reason uh j jonah i was like j jonah jameson that's not right um oh uh uh, oh my god what is his name jk simmons I was like, Jane. Yeah, no. J.K. Simmons is fantastic. He has actually has some voice acting experience as well as Stephen Yun does. J.K. Simmons was in the, the Avatar: The Last Airbender spinoff, Legend of Korra, and he's great in that as well. So he's I, also the yellow Eminem from the Eminem. Is he? Did you guys know that? I did not. I learned know that like that. five years ago, and my mind was blown wow. by that. Wow. Okay, get that money, J.K. Simmons. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Call you yeah, I was going to say, he's probably making most of his money off that mm-hmm. rather than his acting career. I mean, I guess that is part of his acting career, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But yeah, Invincible. Um, I'm only about halfway through, but I'm quite liking it so far. And uh, I think that uh, if you are on the fence about watching it, it does take a little bit of time to kind of get its bearings and figure out what it wants to be as a show. But uh, I like how it plays a sort of straightforward superhero coming of age story. Uh, with a Spider-Man's type of of teenage character uh, and kind of throws a lot of cynical 
violent elements in to keep you on your toes. So uh, that's Invincible, which is, which is streaming now on Amazon, and it's aired in its entirety, so you can watch it all now. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, you've been eating a lot this week. Tell us about it. Yeah, I tried some new things this week uh, that I will tell you about um, once I get to the list of things that I wrote down and forgot about. <laughs> um, no, so I tried uh, the new Ghostbusters Afterlife cereal uh, from General Mills. Um, this was a cool thing to see that they were bringing back since there was a Ghostbusters cereal on and off for a few years back during the popularity of the movies and the animated series. And it's very similar to the uh, original cereal that had um, sweetened corn puffs and marshmallows. Uh, this time it's a, a, um, a fruity flavored, uh, like pinkish red corn puff with uh, ghost shaped marshmallows and then like blue ectoplasm marshmallows, which I assume is probably a reference to uh, the, the future popular character Muncher, which we're all going to be super psyched to see in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, and it's, it's a fine cereal. It's, it's better than like, you know, um, like just, just a, it's not quite as like bad as like a, uh, you know, just, just, just a generic like um, cash grab of like, ooh, get your Ghostbusters cereal, but it's also not super flavorful like a like a tricks cereal or something like that. It, it's basically like uh, berry kicks with with marshmallows, um, which is fine. It is, <laughs> it is what it is. It's just one of those things that kind of it just makes you feel like a kid again to have a, a Ghostbuster cereal, you know, so. Uh, that's uh, you should be able to find that on shelves. You know, the, any 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 grocery stores that are selling cereals and stuff like that. Um, I found mine at Meyer, I think, but you should be able to find it at Walmart or whatever. Um, I also tried. Uh, there's an, um, I I've talked about how much I love uh, Lint chocolate truffles. Um, they're like some of the best chocolate that's out there, and they have a new double chocolate flavor. Uh, and so if if you like Lint chocolate, like this is just like the perfect thing because it's um. It has chocolate on the the, um, the inside. That's it's uh it's I guess a little bit more of like um it has kind of a cocoa flavor to it rather than just regular milk chocolate, which is the are the regular um, red chocolate truffles. Uh, and so it's um it doesn't taste like dark chocolate though. It's a perfect mix of the the two different chocolates that that they have because I'm not a dark chocolate fan. Uh, so these these are pretty good, and I think these are available everywhere too. They they were I, I think I heard about them back in like February or something, and I only just recently finally stumbled upon them. So they're still technically quote unquote new. Um, Wendy's has a new bourbon bacon cheeseburger. Uh, I'm a huge sucker for bacon cheeseburgers in general, especially when they do stuff like uh, put delicious sauce and fried onion strings on them. Uh, so there's um, a really good uh sauce that comes on this burger that's sort of like uh a little bit sweet uh, a little bit tangy a little bit smoky and um i personally think like wendy's has like the better fast food burgers when you c- compare it to like burger king or mcdonald's or anything like that uh and so this is um it's it's a good one it's one of the the better offerings that i think that they've had as far as their uh unique cheeseburger offerings there and then on the other side of the spectrum, Burger King has a new chicken sandwich called the Chicking, which is terrible. A terrible name for a sandwich. Um, but it's going with their branding of like calling all their sandwiches the, the Bacon King or the Rodeo King. And they're trying to get in on the chicken sandwich game since Popeye's, you know, made everyone all of a sudden want to have the next best chicken sandwich. Uh, the only problem is nobody can compete with Popeye's chicken sandwich because it's simply the best chicken sandwich on the market. And uh, Burger King tries, and they try by having um, a hand-breaded chicken um, patty that is 
super breaded. Uh, I don't know if this was a fluke or if this is just what they were going for, but it is a super breaded, very crunchy chicken patty, almost to the point where like it was too crunchy and had too much breading. And I'm somebody who really enjoys like extra crispy fried chicken, but this just felt like a little overwhelming. I was just, I, I, I didn't mind the flavor, but it was just that breading was like, man, this is somewhat hard to chew through. It's, it's way too crispy. Um, and then plus I was also, it's what kind of takes away from it too, is what I think helps a chicken sandwich is, uh, the mayonnaise that gets that's put on it along, along with the pickles. And I normally don't like pickles, but I like them on a chicken sandwich, but Burger King is putting their own signature sauce on it. And it's not quite like a Big Mac sauce, but it's close. So it's kind of Thousand Island, but um, has a little bit different of a flavor. And I don't like it anywhere near as much as having mayonnaise on a chicken sandwich. So ultimately disappointing. If you're going to get a chicken sandwich, just go to Popeye's. Just go to Popeye's and you'll you'll just be happy. <laughs> How does the Burger King one compare to McDonald's? Um, I would say quality-wise, it's better. Because again, the uh, it's... Burger King at least puts a sauce on theirs, but McDonald's doesn't put mayonnaise on their chicken sandwich. Um, the, at least the new one, anyway. So, unless you get the deluxe one, I think. But like the one that just comes with pickles. Oh yeah, I got the deluxe. I was gonna say there was sauce on mine, bro. Yeah, the deluxe <laughs> comes with mayonnaise, but like we get the regular one that just comes with pickles because I don't like tomato. So it's um yeah, they didn't they didn't put mayonnaise on it. So if you get it with mayonnaise, then it's it's the McDonald's one probably may may win um it's just just it's just but yeah it's just popeyes man just just popeyes <laughs> okay um and speaking of mcdonald's yeah uh so the, um this was something that i hadn't seen announced anywhere but i just happened to to see it yesterday um mcdonald's has a new sprite limonade slushy um and i'm somebody that if i if i'm going out somewhere and i end up getting like a soft drink from a restaurant whether it's fast food or sit down um i like to get i ask ask for half lemonade and half sprite uh, I like the mixture of the two. It, it, it's just carbonated enough, and it's just sweet enough with the mixture of Sprite and lemonade. Um, and it's it's mostly because I'm trying to emulate. There's this um, Sunkist had a sparkling lemonade that they released back. This was like I want to say like ten years ago. Um, it was canned and it was delicious. It was one of my favorite soft drinks. And it's 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 gone. They have a new version um that's a different flavor they have a strawberry lemonade that comes close to being as good but nothing beat this sunkissed sparkling lemonade for me and the closest i ever got to it was mixing half sprite and half lemonade so i always do this at restaurants but sprite came out with limonade which is a, a mix of like lemonade with the sprite lemon lime soda and it's pretty dang close to sunkissed lemonade um and so now they have a slushy uh of sprite lemonade at mcdonald's and it's an awesome summer drink. It's uh, very cool, very refreshing, and it's the the mixture that they have for uh, that goes through through the slushy ice. It um, it's right on the money as far as lemonade because sometimes, like with like Coke ices or like soda ices, the syrup can be a little more overwhelming than it is in the actual soda. But with the lemonade, like it's a it's a solid mix and it's really good. Okay. That does it for today's episode. You can find more of all of us at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please head on over to Apple Podcasts. Write us like a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter. Oh, uh, Jacob, I forgot to tell you. Mm-hmm. We got this email. From one of our listeners, Bunny Hero in Toronto, 
and he's been following along with our water cooler episodes and he decided mm-hmm. to do some detective research on USA safety. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he found out some info. I have not double checked this info, so this could be false, but I, I but I'm just going based off his, his email here. I want to read it to you. Um, so he was born in 1898 and he died in 1966. And uh, his obituary doesn't say where he's buried, though, which makes retrieving his corpse more difficult. Oh. Yeah, uh, he had a busy year in 1929 when he gave up his New York law practice to try his hand at stage production, starting an organization called The Show Shop. In his first show, it was supposed to be the Sisters of Chorus. No, wait. Sisters of the Chorus. However, during the tryout performance in the Bronx, the police closed the show due to the district attorney being utterly disgusted by the script. The first show Safin managed to get to Broadway was called Great Scott, and it got mixed reviews. Meanwhile, the writers of Sisters of the Chorus wanted the rights to their playback. Safin disagreed and even claimed that one of his writers had engineered the police interference. The arbitration board decided in the favor of the playwrights, Mooney and Burtis, and Safin uh, closed the show shop and went back to lawyering. Uh, so the, the interesting thing here, Jacob, is that one of these guys that wrote that play, Martin Mooney, is actually he, he had a huge or a big career in screenwriting. So he wrote a bunch of films in like the 40, 30s and 40s, uh, films like The Great Mike, Men of San Quentin. Silent witness, inside information. Anyways, so th- th- so we have we now have some more information on Lucy safety. Yeah, I, this is genuinely fascinating. I need to figure out at what point he left behind lawyering to write the best joke book of all time, the Gantrin yeah. book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts for posts, caustic quips, implied put downs by Lucy Safian. Yeah. Um, Do you think that he fit any of these insults into his screenplays? <laughs> Well, no, he didn't have screenplays. He was mm. he was producing plays. Although the book, he also points. Bunny Hero also points out that the book, the on the back flap of the book, actually not my book, but maybe your book, uh, Jacob. It says he attained nationwide popularity as an inspirational and hum- humorous public speaker and lecturer on a variety of subjects. Mine does not say that. Mine says Louis A. Safian, aka the master of insult. Is the author of <laughs> lists of books, mm-hmm. right to the point. <laughs> uh, I wonder if he had this ex- success with his book while he was alive, or if this is like something that like came afterwards. I'll point out one of his books is called "Jokes and Insults for Both Sexes." <laughs> just, just in case. Uh, anyway, okay, I hope, I hope the page one hundred and seven gossips, uh, Peter. You burn your scandals at both ends. <laughs> okay. You you burn your scandals. I, I get at, it. At both ends. I, I understand. Yeah. Uh, uh, ben, he's on spiking terms with everyone. <laughs> HT, her tongue is your sword, and she makes sure it never gets rusty. That sounds cool. I sound like a cool person. But <laughs> I'll get another one for you. Uh, no, you, I you cluck, like an anime character. You cluck like a hen over your grains of gossip. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> Wait, is that joke for both men and women? Uh, this this chapter seems very gendered toward women, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, Chris, a good description of him would be fair to meddling. Oh. <laughs> Is he meddling? But okay. No, uh, I get it. 
Uh, Brad, he never repeats gossip because he's the one who starts it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs>